The scripture reading is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from, the, from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 32 is a song that was written by King David, and in this song, he describes two things. He describes the sorrow of sin and the joy of being forgiven. So, so first, you'll notice in this psalm, David, he talks about the sorrow that came into his life when he allowed his own sin to uh, create distance between himself and God. And, and we're, not, we're not sure because it doesn't say. We're not sure exactly what sin in his life David is talking about here. In fact, in the first two verses of the psalm, he, he actually uses three different Hebrew words to describe sin. At the beginning of verse 1, he uses a word that here is translated transgressions. And that was, that was a word that basically meant it meant to cross a line. It meant, it meant to do something that you're not supposed to do. So, uh, you know, God says, thou shalt not steal, and you steal. God says, thou shalt not lie, and you tell a lie. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, and you commit adultery. So it's, it's describing when you do something you're not supposed to do. And some would refer to that as a sin of commission, the second word David uses it would describe what you might call a sin of omission, when you leave something out. And this is the word at the end of verse 1, it's translated sin, singular. And in Hebrew, this was a word, it literally meant to go astray or to fail to follow the proper path. So rather than, you know, doing something you're not supposed to do, this is when you, you fail to do something you should do. God says Help the poor, and you don't help the poor. God says, forgive other people. You hold on to a grudge. God says, honor the Sabbath, and you, you, know, you skip out on worship. Right? So it's, this would be not a sin of commission. It's a sin of omission. So the first word he uses, it means doing something you're not supposed to do. Second word means failing to do something you are supposed to do. The third word he uses to describe sin, it's not talking about anything we do. It's not talking about anything we don't do. It's just, it's a description of who we are. 
This is the word you see at the beginning of verse 2. In this version, it's, it's translated sin, singular. Some, some versions will render it iniquity. And this was a, it was a Hebrew word that basically meant uh, twisted or bent or distorted. And, and in this context, it's a description of the human heart, of, of our condition. See, the Bible teaches us that there is something inside every one of us that's broken. There's just, there's, there's, there's something that broken in us. So the Bible would say that, that we, we're not sinners because we sin. No, we sin because we are sinners. Something broken inside us that, that leads us to selfishness and dishonesty and ingratitude and unbelief. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 7, verse 17. Jesus said, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. In other words, he's saying if there's, if there's sin in your life, the, the problem is not that the fruit is bad. The problem, he would say, is there's something wrong with the tree. So sin, it's, it's, it, yes, it's things that we do or things that we fail to do, but it's, it's more than that. It's, in a sense, it's who we are. So, as I said, we're not sure exactly what sin is. In his own life, David is talking about here, he uses different words to describe sin. But what, whatever it was, whatever the sin was, apparently David tried to ignore it. He, uh, he, he tried to hide it, just pretend it wasn't there. He kept silent about it. He says in verse 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Sometimes, um, sometimes car owners will get into their automobile, they'll turn on the ignition, and a little light on the dashboard comes on. It says, check engine. Maybe that's happened to you. And sometimes drivers will say, it's probably nothing. The car sounds okay. I think it's a problem with the light bulb and the dashboard. I, you know, if I just ignore it, it will probably go away. And that's, that's kind of what King David was doing with his sin. Just ignoring it. Just pretending it wasn't there. Pretending it wasn't that bad. I wonder, have you ever done that? Have you? I... I have, okay, and I can tell you from experience that when, whenever, whenever something's wrong in here, whenever something's wrong between us and God, ignoring the problem never makes it go away, ever. And ignoring the problem of sin, it always leads to sorrow, and, and that's what David talks about here. He says, when I kept silent, when I refused to deal with this, I was living in denial, he says, my bones wasted away. What an image. Like he's saying there, I, I withered on the inside. And he says to the Lord, he says, day and night, your hand was heavy on me. Now that, in the context of the Old Testament, that is an astonishing statement. Your hand was heavy on me. You see, the writers of the Old Testament, from time to time, they would use this metaphor of the hand of God, the hand of the Lord, and they would use it to describe our experience of God's work in our lives. Our experience of God's work in our lives, they'd say, this is God's hand. And almost invariably in the Old Testament, when God's people experience God's hand, it's always really, really good. 
Now, it's different with God's enemies, all right? But with, with the covenant people of God, when they experience God's hands, it's, it's something really good is happening in their life. For example, Ezekiel the prophet, when he, when he gained some new insight, some new revelation, he's about to prophesy, he would say, the hand of the Lord came upon me. Or Nehemiah, when the, the civic leader, when he experienced God's favor in his work, he would say, the, the gracious hand of God was with me. Or when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. Here's what they said. They said, the hand of the Lord rescued us from our enemies. So for God's covenant people in the Old Testament, when, when they experience God's hand, this is always something very, very good. Except for here. Isn't that astonishing? When David lived in denial, when he neglected to, he didn't want to deal with his sin, just ignore it, make excuses, blame others, you know, refuse to confess. We've all been there. The one thing that should have been the source of great joy in his life, the hand of God, it now, it weighed heavily on him. One Christian author has written this. I wonder if you would agree with this statement. He said, we will never find joy in God. We will never find joy in God while willingly and habitually living in unconfessed sin. And that's, that's what King David experienced. When, when it, he says, when I kept silent, it was like I was pressed down, I was weary. God's presence was just a crushing experience. He said, I had no joy. I, I like the way the, the message version of the Bible translates verse in 3 and 4. It says this, when I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. So that's one thing he describes in this psalm, the, the sorrow of sin. Verse 10, he says, many are the woes of the wicked. Whoa, what a word. That he just describes this as sorrow. But that's not all he talks about. He also, in this psalm, he talks about joy, the great joy of being forgiven. How many of you know that God forgives sins? It, let, me, let me read for us again, verse 3 and 4. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Verse 5, Then... I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And the Lord said, eh, I'll think about it. Give me some time. And, and, and then the Lord came back. He said, David, I'll tell you what. You're confessing your sin. I'll put you on six months proba probation, all right? For six months, if you can keep your act clean and you can prove to me that you're sincere, then maybe then we'll remove this transgression from your file. No, that's not what it says. That is not what it says. He, he, he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave. Just like that. You forgave the guilt of my sin. And this is so amazing. It, apparently, it took David a long time to come around to confessing his sin, but it didn't take God long at all to forgive him. Isn't that something? This old, um, this old Puritan writer who wrote a commentary on this psalm, his name was Matthew Henry. This, this is what he wrote. He said, note, God 
is more ready to pardon sin upon our repentance than we are to repent in order to obtain that pardon. It, it, was, it was with much ado that David was here brought to confess his sins. He was put to the rack before he was moved to do it. He held out long and wouldn't surrender till it came to the last extremity. But when he did offer to surrender, see how quickly, how easily he obtained terms of mercy? He, he, he just said, I will confess. And God forgave, just like that. Now, now, the Hebrew word that's translated forgave here, God forgave, it, it's a word that it, it literally means to lift away. It's like God just said to David, David, you confessed. Guess what? Your guilt is gone. It's gone. And, and you know, do you know this? The New Testament says that because Jesus Christ, God's Son, offered His life on the cross as an atoning sacrifice, it, it says that whenever anyone, anyone turns to God in, in repentance and faith in Christ, God does exactly that. He says, your guilt is gone. It's gone. I, I love, one verse I love is Hebrews 1, verse 3. Uh, I, just, I love the image this gives. It says this, after Christ provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I just love that. After Christ provided purification for sins, he just sat down. It's like he said, you know what? My work here is done. I'm going to sit down. It's all done. And, and some of you know uh, John 19, verse 30. What are the, according to John 19, what is the very last thing Jesus said right before he died? What is it? He said, it is it's finished. And we say, what's finished? Everything. Everything that needed to be done for you to, to receive instant, permanent pardon from God. It was all accomplished by Christ on the, on the cross. It's finished. You turn to God through faith in Christ. God says, it, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the sin is. God says, your guilt, all of it, it's gone. Now, how many of you think that's good news? All right. But I want to tell you, it gets even better. <laughs> it gets even better. Now, if, if you look at this psalm, not only does, does God cancel the guilt of our sin, the end of verse 1 says God also covers our sin up. It says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I was, I was in a supermarket once, and at the checkout area, on the wall, they had this array of uh, Polaroid pictures of very unhappy-looking people who were holding items of food, and these were people that they caught them shoplifting, right? This is what they had stolen, and I guess the store's policy was if we catch you shoplifting, we won't press charges, but we will never, ever, ever forget what you've done. We're going to put it on the wall. Everyone will know we will never forget. Aren't you glad God is not like that? Yes, he deserves a hand, right? Aren't you glad God doesn't say, all right, you confessed. Jesus died for you. On a technicality, I won't press charges. But I will never forget what you did. I'm, in fact, I'm going to take a picture of your sin. I'm going to post it on the wall of heaven. And for the rest of eternity, I'm going to look at that. I will never forget. Oh, God is not like that. He covers our sin up. 
Isaiah 43, verse 25, here's what God said. God said this. I'm not making this up. He said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Here's, here's how Micah the prophet put it. In Micah 17, 7, verse 19, he said, when God forgives us, he says, God will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. When I was a kid, I heard this uh, Christian author and speaker named Corey Ten Boom. I heard her speak, and she used to say this. He, she says, when God forgives us, he hurls our sins into the depths of the sea, and then God posts a sign. And the sign says, no fishing, no fishing. It's, it's gone. Isn't that good? It's good. But it gets even better. All right, it gets, even, it gets even better. When we, listen, when we confess and we turn to God and we repent, not only does God cancel our, our, our guilt, not only does God co cover up our sin, David, here's what David experienced. When we confess and we repent, God himself, David says, God becomes our hiding place. Verse 7, he says, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. Now, the, the Hebrew phrase, hiding place, it meant a refuge, a shelter. It meant a place you could go and you would be safe. And I think that's amazing. I really do, because conceivably, God could have said to David, all right, David, you, you confessed your sin. I will forgive. I will forget. But I don't want to see your face anymore. I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want you coming near. I don't want you hanging around me. You wanted forgiveness. You got forgiveness. Now get out. You know, conceivably, God could have said that. But after forgiving David, God says, come here. Like Joe talking about his dad. Says, Sit in my lap. Come here. I want to be your hiding place. You see, the Bible tells us that when God forgives us, forgiveness, forgiveness from God, it means more than just we no longer have to hide from God. It means we are invited to hide in God. Do you understand that? God wants us around. He wants us with him. He, it's like he gives us our own set of house keys and says, come over anytime you want. Mi casa es tu casa, right? In the New Testament terms, it says this. When God forgives us, he takes us home, he adopts us into his family, and we become his kids. Isn't that amazing? He becomes our hiding place. And you, you know what that means? You've turned to God through faith in Christ. You've, you've, you've repented of your sin. This means you never, ever, ever need to fear God's rejection, ever. You never need to fear his condemnation. You never need to fear that God secretly wishes you weren't, you know, part of his family. God himself becomes your home. How many of you think that's good? But it gets even better. <laughs> David confesses his sin. His guilt is canceled. His iniquity is covered. God becomes his hiding place. And then David starts to hear music. Some, somebody's singing. Who's singing? God himself begins to sing with joy 
over the, the repentant sinner. End of verse 7, David says, you surround me with songs of, of deliverance. In other words, when we, listen, I don't know if you believe this, but I'm telling you it's true. When we turn to God in, in, with faith in Christ, repentance of sin, God is so happy to forgive us. The metaphor is God himself bursts into song. God does. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in England in the 1800s. He wrote a commentary on the Psalms. And here's what he says about this phrase. You surround me with songs of deliverance. He wrote this. What a golden sentence. The man is encircled in song, surrounded by dancing mercies, all of them proclaiming the triumphs of grace. He said there's no break in the circle. It completely rings him around. On all sides, he hears music. Before him, hope sounds the cymbals. Behind him, gratitude beats the timbrel. Right and left, above and beneath, the air resounds with joy. See, when we, when, we, when we turn to God and we just say, I'm just so sick and tired of my sin, won't you please forgive me? Um, the metaphor is God is so thrilled and rejoicing that he himself begins to sing. Yes. My child is home. So, so you see, the joy, the joy of forgiveness, it's not only our joy, is it? It's God's joy as well. It's like we heard, we heard um, Jocelyn read for us from the, the parable of the prodigal son. When the son comes home, does the, does the father say, okay, son, you're home. Your, your bedroom was down at the end of the hall. No, the father says, strike up the band. We're going to have a party. We're going to rejoice in fact, Jesus said, Jesus said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one repentant sinner than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. In other words, I, I think Christ was saying there is nothing, there's nothing that makes God happier than to forgive. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing. So that's why the psalm says, don't be a horse. <laughs> don't be a mule. Right? No, I guess I don't know much about horses or mules. I guess you have to yank them around to get. I, I, I don't know much about mules, but I did used to have a dog, all right? And, and I was not a good dog trainer. So this is the kind of dog that when we, when we took her for a walk, she was always pulling on the leash. You know the kind of dog, right? Just always fighting against you. And I was like, what is the matter with you? Don't you know I'm taking you to the park? Don't you know you're going to have fun? Why are you resisting me? That's what, the, that's what the psalmist is saying. Don't be like that. Don't you know how much God loves you and wants to forgive you? So, so I think the psalmist would say if there's anything, anything in your life that just, it's creating distance between you and God. God is right now inviting you to joy. Do you understand that when the Bible calls us to repent, this is not a nagging voice from heaven. You're a bad boy. You're a bad girl. This is an invitation to unmeasurable joy. And hear me, it's offered to you right now in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we've all known the feeling that this song talks about. We've known what it feels like to just feel um, distant and far from you. And, and I thank you that today, no matter who we are, no matter how many times we've repented of the same old sin, whatever it is, today, because of Christ, you offer us joy. And so I pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit would give us grace to respond and receive what you have for us.
In Christ's name, in Christ's name, amen.